0: Hey, everyone. I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett.
1: And I'm Juliette Starrett.
0: And you're listening to The Ready State Podcast. You got it. You stop it.
1: This you episode got it. of The Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Momentous Essential Plant-Based Protein.
0: The reason we're talking about the plant-based protein, it's not so we can get into some argument on the internet about which protein allows me to express myself through my movement. It's about the fact that we have a whole lot of people, in spite of the fact that the regular whey protein has incredible enzymes that make it more digestible, cannot handle lactose.
1: Yeah, it makes them feel sick and they don't digest it well.
0: And we also have a lot of friends who are vegans and vegetarians. And what we try to do in our family is be judgment-free. That Instead, we're saying, hey, look, you're going to eat the way you want. Eat that's according to your values at least get enough protein
1: and this protein is a mix of pea and rice protein it has a complete amino acid profile and what's again always the most oh, don't important do it. don't do it you're gonna say it, it actually tastes good i know
0: i know we have a ton of professional athlete friends who had a hard time they'd get runny belly they would really really trying to add protein into supplement when they switch to a plant-based protein when they switch to momentous essential plant protein no problems. And they were able to hit their macros because our model is eat whole foods first and foremost. But I oftentimes struggle to get enough protein during the day. I'm just going and just don't eat it. So I love myself a protein shake. It's how I hit my protein macros every day.
1: If you want to try some plant-based protein, go to the slash momentous and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Chili Sleep.
0: Look, The thing that I have battled my whole life the most. Is being a hot sleeper. The hottest, like drenched, pillow soaked, little chalk murder outline of my body. (laughs) (laughs) And no one wants to touch me because I'm a thousand degrees.
1: You are a thousand degrees. There's not a lot of spooning going on. I
0: I ran into the Chili Sleep kids at a big conference and immediately was like, okay, this is the day my life changed. Because Chili Sleep basically circulates cold water underneath your sheet at a temperature that's right for you. I started sleeping better. I started sleeping more densely. There are many options based on your cooling power needs and budget.
1: And your budget. And And I can really attest to the fact that Of all the products that have landed in our laps over the years, this is definitely one of Kelly's favorites and maybe one of five or so that he recommends the most to his friends and people he works with professionally.
0: If you're you're also struggling to improve your sleep quality, oftentimes you've got the eye mask on, you've got the earplugs in, it's dark, you're off the blue light. This is the missing piece. It is the missing piece. What's amazing is how cold I can get these days, especially when it's hot out. We don't have AC in our house, true fact, and uh, it doesn't matter.
1: Head on over to chilisleep.com slash trs to learn more and save off the purchase of any new Cube, Uller, or Doc Pro sleep system. There is an offer available exclusively for the Ready State podcast listeners and only for a limited time. That's chilisleep.com C-H-I-L-I, slash trs to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day. Dr. Brent Brookbush is the founder and CEO of the Brookbush Institute. He has led the development of an education platform that puts 160-plus evidence-based accredited courses and three certifications in the palm of your hand for a fraction of the cost of comparable courses and certifications in the industry. The Brookbush Institute continues to innovate with the intent of building the education platform all of us wish existed. Outside of his duties as CEO, Dr. Brooke Bush continues to consult and practice as a physical therapist and personal trainer in New York City.
0: Brett has been in the health and wellness industry since 98. He's an impassioned educator and has been working with industry giants from Shape Magazine, Town Sports International, Equinox, and even NASM, National Academy of Sports Medicine. J-Star, this conversation is pretty amazing because I feel like we are being hit over the head in the world about research. And Brent is an expert in understanding and disseminating research.
1: Yeah, I thought this was such an important conversation because I think we're all in a place where we don't really understand research, or most of us don't anyway. We don't understand how to read it and interpret it. And we bandy about terms like evidence-based when we don't even know what that means.
0: I've been following Brent for a long time and use him as a way for myself of how he aggregates and really disseminates a lot of the research in my field, my vertical. But he also spends a lot of time educating practitioners and, believe it or not, professional people in better consumption of the research. Because even just coming through COVID, where we saw research weaponized, it's really difficult to understand who's an expert and who's not. And what do I come to trust as a person just trying to make their way in times of change? (laughs)
1: In the crazy internet world, you mean? Um, You know, the other thing that I loved about our conversation and that I admire so much about Brent is that he's on this mission to try to transform education. And based on his own experiences in education, many of which he found to be lacking, he really has sort of set forth to figure out how he can offer courses that are consumable that are accessible and available for people. And, you know, that's really the core of his mission. And it was cool to hear him talk about how passionate he is about yeah,
0: that. The other piece of it is that it's easy to forget that he is not just a clinician talking about meta. He's been coaching people. He's an active physio. And because he's a user, and he's an actual person who works with other people helping to solve problems, that's his primary filter. He's This isn't just academic, for lack of a better phrase. This is a person saying, hey, I'm trying to help, people feel better, work better, live better lives. And I think we can do a better job of educating professionals who are also doing that.
1: Yeah, we had a super cool conversation with Brent and I think you guys are all really going to enjoy it.
0: Hold on to your butts.
1: Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Brent, welcome to the Ready State podcast. We're really excited to chat you up today.
2: Awesome. I'm really excited to be chatted up.
1: I think, chat it up. First of all, I'll just start by answering your pre-question. We can get you a Ready State hat immediately.
2: That's fantastic. Okay. I'm also going to need to know about Kelly's tattoo artist, except I want cheetah prints on my right arm. See, like I'm going (laughs) to... A, we can do all of that.
0: Second is that I try to wear a foam trucker hat anytime I'm trying to speak to something on topic from a point of perspective, because I'm trying to really elevate the trucker hat. Oh. And uh, if I can, if it's like I can, an
1: intellectual trucker. Yeah. Hat. It's like,
0: an, like, yeah, well, you know, I just want to show everyone that my trucker foam hat is, has a sensitive intellectual side.
1: All right. Well, with that, Brent, I would love it. If you could just give our listeners a quick background about who you are, and where you are and where you are and what your company does.
2: Okay. Who I am, where I am, what my company does, who I am. All right. So I'm, Brent Brookbush. I'm a trainer, a uh, doctor of physical therapy, and education is kind of like my thing. Where I'm at, I'm in New York City, personally. Our company is, is more of a virtual education company, so I guess we exist online. And what we do, obviously, is optimize education for our colleagues, which we consider all movement professionals. So we're very inclusive, like Trainers, physical therapists, chiropractors, athletic trainers, occupational uh, therapists—who am I forgetting? Osteopaths, massage therapists. Did I say massage therapists already? I might have. Anybody who's in those movement professions are part of what we consider that profession that we should all be working to combine. And of course, what we do from a practical standpoint is we're a continuing education company, so we provide those CECs that certified and licensed professionals need to maintain their certifications and license, as well as we offer certifications ourselves. So we offer a certified personal training certification, as well as advanced credentials, being the human movement specialist, which is corrective exercise-based, and then the integrated manual therapist, which is a integrated manual therapy certification.
0: You uh, said something I just want to come back to, because I really want to dive into how subversive and radical your education platform is, the Brent Bookbush Institute it's not the Brent book, it's just the Brookbush Institute True. really has gone out of its way to disrupt how people can consume continuing education, base understanding credits in an affordable way. But before we even get there, because that's, I feel like is one of the most radical things you do is you just expanded movement professional to in- include the people who actually teach most of the movement, trainers and coaches working in YMCAs. When I went to physio school, we are like talking about allied healthcare. And it did not include kairos. It did not include trainers. How did you make that switch? I mean, I think I understand how, as a coach, how I made that switch. But that's a big deal that you just sort of cast this bigger net and said, oh, no, 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 we're all in the same spoke on a wheel.
1: Which I think just before you answer that is a very, I've never heard it described that way. And I'm definitely using that in the future because I always use like practitioner or some kind of word that doesn't, I don't think properly describe, but like movement professional is great. I think it is just an awesome way to describe this group of people.
2: Yeah, I think I kind of morphed into the movement professional uh, label. And I think it comes down to talking to my colleagues and realizing that like, obviously, Kelly, you and I are physical therapists, but then we go and talk to a chiro who's working with, for example, let's say talking to a chiro who works with athletes and their scope of practice is the same. If you're doing orthopedic outpatient physical therapy and you talk to a chiropractor who's a mixer... Right, is the term they use, right? Who's using some exercise and using some other techniques, we're basically ending up in the same place, right? Because we, we all want to be effective at the end of the day. So we all kind of gravitate towards the most effective techniques and in an integrated approach. And then you start pulling in some other things. Well, like ATCs do the same stuff we do, right? Like they're not really different. And then, like, you even start thinking about, okay, well, if we take this outpatient occupational therapy thing even a little further, right? Knowing that it is part of this whole fitness, performance, rehab sphere, occupational therapists become a part of that. They're definitely working with exercise and movement, and they should probably be able to do some manual techniques. In fact, it's within their scope. They just don't get taught as much of it as they probably could use. Um, And then, of course, massage therapists. Like, Why are massage therapists using assessments and using massage more as a means of helping people move better? right? So that their long-term outcomes are better. Like you start realizing, like, as long as it's within your scope, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is the, the patient, the client.
1: Right. And the outcome.
2: Right. So I'll talk a lot to people like, the outcomes don't care about what your title is. <laughs> right? Like, you know, right. the best way to treat isn't based on the fact that you're a doctor of physical therapy. The best way to treat is based on what's going to get your client or patient the best possible outcome. Which now you think about what I was just talking about with all these spheres and like scope of practice, and it's like, okay, just for a second with me, do this thought experiment. If you laid out all of the techniques we all know on a table, what would you choose, and what would it be based on? I can tell you right now, it wouldn't be be based on. Oh, well, I'm a physical therapist, so I'm going to pick up the grasping tools, right? Like or the ISTM tools, we use smart tools over here, but whatever. Um, you get what I'm saying? Like, we wouldn't just pick things up because we're a profession. We would pick things up, like, if we're really being smart about it, we would work our way from outcomes and go backwards, okay? So if I want to get the best possible outcome, right? So I want the best, long-term, most reliable, most effective technique that'll get them there the fastest. And it's probably going to be a mix of techniques. What would those be?
0: We, uh, I try to scrap all the time to people. I'm like, well, I was a classically trained as a physical therapist, but now I do something that feels an, akin to something else, right? I can say where I came from, but you know, in strength and yeah, conditioning, like that's your
1: formal training. That's my formal training. Yeah,
0: like you're a CEO, but you were you also happen to be a, you're trained as an attorney, right? Right. One of the things that happens in strength conditioning performance is that I'm like, oh, these endurance athletes know a lot about fueling long distance and training cardiac capacity and zone two and third wave adaptation. And I'm like, oh, these bodybuilders and they don't know how to put mass on people fast and they know how to manipulate body composition. And, and all of a sudden you realize that, you know, so many of these disparate, seemingly disparate fields, of course, are connected. Right. But where I think we get into trouble and help me how, how we should think about it is it seems like there's an awful lot of overlap. And that sets up a possibility where people are elbowing for space. This is my dance space. You're in my field. I see a lot of the internet has blown this regionalism apart, right? Because I think one of the things that I find so amazing about your content is that you are teaching people things that were traditionally really behind a very expensive paywall, right? And you're doing so in a really safe forward thinking progressive way that's appropriate as an expert in education but you've blown apart these these divides do you feel like you were one of the first people into that space how have you managed to not lose your sanity when you're bringing all these people together and they're seemingly competing with each other
2: i don't think i'm the first in fact if anything i would say i'm the second i'm part of that second generation right where i think you had like the gary grays and then like the Mike Clarks of NASM and, you know, you had some of these other guys who are already starting to bring the, the physical therapy and sports medicine worlds together. To your point, like you have this huge overlap between endurance athletes and hypertrophy athletes, right? Like we know that like it all comes down to fueling and exercise and frequency and what are your acute variables and how do you periodize, right? And that's all within that stuff. But then you also look at any of these athletes and it's like, you're only going to make progress if you stay up. Or orthopedically healthy, right? So, like, that's where the corrective exercise and rehab comes in. Because if you think you're going to be a high level athlete and never get injured, (laughs) good luck, Um, right? Like, physical therapy might be, or or corrective exercise, or self management of exercise, like the ready state, like that actually might be the most important piece for high level athletes. Because keeping out their training is actually really hard once you start getting into those higher volumes and you start really pushing the intensity over the edge. So. I don't think I'm actually new to any of that. Like I said, if anything, I would say I'm the second gen, I'm part mm-hmm. of that second generation, I would say me and you are part of that second generation, there's another generation coming after us, I would say that first generation, like you can look back and definitely see where some of this was coming in with NASM and like even the NSCA for a second had a partnership with FMS, right with Gray Cook, right? And He actually comes after Gary Gray too. So but like within that 10-year period, which was like the 90s, early 2000s, there was definitely people already started to bring this stuff together.
1: So one of the things I think is so compelling about what you're doing is, in addition to all of the awesome actual content you put out there or your company puts out, but um, I feel like you're really a disruptor of education and you're really trying to think about how to do education differently, which I think is also so relevant in these COVID times, regardless of who you are, whether you have kids or adults or whatever. I think it's been sort of a time where we've all rethought how people can learn and what's possible. So can you just talk a little bit about sort of how you came to even care about doing education differently and what it is you actually do differently?
2: Yeah, I've said this on a couple of podcasts. People think I'm in education because I love education. <laughs> I'm actually in education because I hate education. And I think anybody would get there like I did after putting themselves through three degrees. And I hate to like get into this woe is me story, but it was like, I was on my own. I've always been on my own. I put myself through school. And like, you guys know, like trying to like hold down a career and put yourself through school is a nightmare. And like, especially doing three degrees, right? A bachelor's, a master's and a doctorate. I was basically running myself ragged for like a decade, right, or more. And it's just not fair. The caste system of education, Has become so much more complicated than the finance, right? Everybody talks about tuition costs, but they forget about the fact that like, when you get to DPT school, they basically look you in the face and go, you think you're going to hold down a job? We're going to make sure we get in the way of you holding a job every chance we possibly can, right? They will scold you for leaving class to go to work, to put food on your table. It's crazy. Right.
1: That definitely happened to Kelly.
2: It happened to me. Like, I I can't tell you how many arguments I got into where, I mean, often they would, it wasn't even me being irresponsible and like booking a work shift or booking a client during a class. It was them changing a class into my work shift and them expecting me to give my work no notice. You know, like stuff like that. So anyway, that paints a picture, right? That paints an atmosphere. I think everybody can relate to what I'm talking about. And then you start just breaking all this stuff down and you go, this just isn't necessary right? Like, why are we showing up to class for didactic information? Like didactic information can be taught online. In fact, you know, you look at Khan Academy, Khan Academy was one of my first major influences for them where they flipped the classroom, they put the lectures on video, and there's such huge advantages to video for students. Because rather than bother me while I'm teaching, right? Ask a question, ask a question, ask a question, ask me to repeat myself, ask me to repeat myself, ask me to repeat myself, hold on, can, can you just stop for a second so I can write a note? right? Like all that stuff. They can pause, they can replay, they can watch things two or three times. That's how the Khan Academy got its start, right? Is he made some videos for his nephews and his nephews actually flat out told him that they liked the videos better than him, right? They'd rather watch him on video than actually have him tutoring them. And it's for all the reasons I just said. So you take that little piece and you go, well, how far can we push this? Right, we can have video, we can have text. You know, all of our courses have voiceover. You know, I'm in love with Audible. Audible has changed my life, Audible from Amazon, right? Like I do all of my business reading through Audible. Right, that's another route of learning. And then you start breaking that down and go, okay, well, not only are we gonna have this multimedia thing, since we're online, we can put it on a couple different formats. We can be mobile on a phone, we can be on a computer. All right, so we can design for those two platforms. And then if we're going to get really crazy, we can start thinking about things like, well, shouldn't this be bite-sized? Wouldn't it be a lot easier to get through education if you could do it 30 minutes, 60 minutes, two hours, three hours at a time, rather than having to sit there for eight or nine hours? I don't know, Kelly, me and you love to teach workshops, but you can look at like students at the end of a two-day, eight-hour, nine-hour oh, workshop, they're like just fried, right? Now, imagine if... Now, obviously, workshops have their own advantages, so... I'm not taking anything away from what me or you do for live workshops because that's practical education. Those are a lot of fun. I think those events are very, very important. But when you talk about education as a whole, how much can we get modular, get online, right? So that they're convenient and portable, put them in multimedia format. So whatever your learning style and sometimes just the information you're looking at, right? Like sometimes information is easier to look at by text like research stuff. Some things are just you'd rather watch on video, like demonstrations of exercises. Some things you'd rather listen to a couple times while you're doing your chores, like practical applications or reviews of research you wanna like listen to a couple times before you take your exam. You take advantage of all of that, okay, well here's the next advantage. If I can get it online, I can get to multimedia, I can get it automated. It is now infinitely scalable, which now all of a sudden we go, okay, obviously operating budgets for education, all right. And this is not an exaggeration operating budgets for an education company are in the billions uh, per year. There's almost no way to get around it. You start adding accreditation, web development costs, content development costs, like it's in the millions, but if I got to a certain membership base, how much could I reduce the upfront cost of education? And then all of a sudden, we were talking about the Khan Academy before, you look at something like Netflix and you go, oh, wait a second. If Netflix can do it, a, and you look at start looking at Netflix as a multi-million, billion-dollar content development and organization platform, why can't we just take that and do it for education? And the truth is, well, at least according to me. You
0: can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things I, I love about this is I've become re-obsessed with this idea of hyperlocality. That you have hyperlocal systems. Like Juliet knows her family better than anyone else. She knows the realities of her family. And one of the things that you do with your a person working with clients locally in their gym is they know the background, they know the culture, they know the movement history, they know the experiences they can minister to that person in a real way that you could never do with a national program. Or if I'm like, everyone must do the ready state and here is the program on a day, you have to do these things for an hour. it just doesn't work. People throw it out. Why? Because we are in the business of where the rubber hits the road. So I come in and teach principles and I say, here's how this integrates and here's where my system and my thinking can do with what you're doing. And I feel like the institute, um, the BBI, does that really well because just, is that
1: actually a name? Did you just name
0: it that? Brook pushes too that's BBI. No, I know. It's, I know B- but was, right. that, it's, it's just one B. I it's saw just Brand one laugh. I just, just saw, I just saw
1: B I just <laughs> saw Brown <Brad> laugh <laughs> when you said when you said BBI, I, I saw him laugh and I was like, say. this must be a first.
0: I think I said BBI on our, our our text. But the <laughs> idea is what you have done is create an opportunity to have the full guns and access, equity of higher education, really excellent content. And A, an affordable model, and B, in a way where someone can actually consume it that makes sense to their life. That I could be, from 10 to 11, I could work, or I have I a break. think for
1: that is accessibility.
0: It is. But also, the, you know, it, it respects this hyperlocality that this trainer working in the middle of nowhere with no resources or few resources can make a positive impact on their community if we can get them the right information in a way that they can consume it. That's a big deal.
2: Yeah. I mean... You know, we kind of have these, like, different parts of our business, right? And obviously, we talked about the accessibility piece, which we can do through technology, and of course, the affordability by using something like the Netflix-style membership model, right, or the SaaS model, if you want to take it from more of, like, a technology place with, like, Salesforce, right? And then you have that delivery piece, which you're kind of talking about. It's like, how do we make it flexible and convenient and optimize delivery, which is actually how I got the, the whole Brookbush Institute started, was me going... There is a lot of smart people in our industry who do not know how to teach. You know, there is a science behind teaching. It is kind of amazing that you have to have a master's degree in education to teach high school. But to teach a doctorate, you don't need to know anything about education.
1: That is really a head scratcher, right? Like the amount of training, you know, just think about the even the amount of training in education you have to have to be an elementary school teacher. And then we spend ourselves and pay for our kids to go to all these schools and colleges and graduate programs where those people have zero training in actual education. Yeah. That's kind of a mind boggler.
2: The sad thing about that is, too, is like you can get probably 70 percent to ideal education, ideal delivery with a fairly small amount of education and education. Like you could probably take a weekend workshop, get the majority of the way there, and then it takes practice, right? Like it takes a lot of like explaining it to students, seeing what explanations work better than others, seeing how your test results run out. You just A-B test, A-B test, A-B test, A-B test, you know, I'm sure.
0: It is A-B testing.
2: Me and Kelly can talk for hours about like different examples, analogies, activities we've done inside of our workshops that start scoping and refining the way we deliver these things, right? And that is all lesson plan development. Um, And then you're starting to talk about content and, you know, I got lucky in the sense that I was taught evidence-based, systematic, integrated, outcome-driven right off the bat, right? So like, I never had this idea in my head that it was Brent's way or the highway. It never crossed my mind that I would be able to go, hey, uh, fitness industry, this is the Brent method. And you should buy my stuff because I'm really cool. And I shaved my head, Um, right? Like some some of the, I mean, you guys laugh, but it's like some of the stuff I look at online, I feel like it's like just that random. So when you take those concepts, right? And if we add patient centered in there somewhere too, right? Evidence-based, it's like, well, evidence-based, you have to be driven by your outcomes and then refined by research. What is the research telling us to do? You have to be systematic about your approach. You can't just randomly take research. Like, how do you create a process that allows you to review research in such a way that it's going to improve accuracy and reduce bias and errors? Right. So, you, like, this whole idea behind accuracy of information, and you kind of end up like what we're talking about, where it's like it's not the quality of information is the way it is, not because. We're just trying to be the bet better than the next guy. It's like, no, no, this is evidence-based practice. This is what everybody's been talking about. It just, unfortunately, as me and Kelly have talked about on several occasions on our little personal notes back and forth to each other, it seems like there's very few people really willing to put in the effort to be evidence-based.
1: I have like 10 questions on this evidence-based practice thing, but before we get too far afield from that, Kelly and I both also listen to a lot of audiobooks on Audible, huge fans. And it's really, for me, changed just the amount of books I can consume because, oh, yeah. you know, I can listen to a book while I do the dishes or fold the laundry or, you know, go for a walk or whatever. So so that's been miraculous. But we recently um, were making a note in our in our newsletter about how we listened to some book and then we decided to do a poll on the Ready State Instagram stories about whether listening to a book on Audible is reading or not. And uh, (laughs) before you answer this question, given that I consider you to be an expert in education, whether you would call yourself that or not, I actually was really surprised because to me, it is reading and does count as reading. And my assumption is that it is absorbed into your brain in maybe a different pathway, but like still is sort of the same as reading. Better pathways. And, you know, the last time I checked the poll, though, it was like, 52% it is reading, 48% it isn't reading, which really surprised me that that many people thought it isn't reading. So before I ask you about anything actually related to your expertise, what do you think about that? And can you put this debate to bed once and for all?
2: Well, we could could just (laughs) say I listened to a book, um, which then just makes everybody scratch their heads too. But you brought up, I actually think I call it reading a book um to your point i get through something like 70 to 100 books a year on audible i do all the same stuff you do while i'm actually watching my neighbor's dog this week while i'm walking the dog chores while i'm doing my warm up and corrective exercise or my cool downs i just take in all of these books and everybody has the same critique and they are totally missing the point so i hope everybody's like listening in right now i don't absorb as much when i listen to a book okay, but you don't read books. So absorbing less of something is still better than... <laughs> better than absorbing nothing of nothing. Of nothing
0: right? Yes. yes. So
2: like, I admit that if I sat down and read a book and took notes, I would probably retain more. But if I retain, let's just say 10% of what I listen to, 10%. That means at the end of the year, reading 70 books of... Absorb the equivalent of seven full books. How many people actually read seven full books a year with 100% retention, right?
1: Probably zero.
2: Not to mention if I like, so I have a, to your point, I was just gonna, there's recommended, not recommended. There is mandatory reading for my employees. And what I will do is before we have a meeting going over those books and how they apply to our overarching strategy, I'll listen to them again, which then puts my comprehension even higher. Right. And if I really want to comprehend a topic, I'll listen to multiple audio books on the topic. And what you start to do is once you start understanding the language around a topic, your attention increases. Okay.
0: Brent CEO, tell us what some of those
2: books are. What do you make your,
1: yeah. Like, yeah. Like what are your, you know, top five, top eight. What are the not to miss?
2: Okay. So, we can actually take one of the books and go back to another conversation that I think you're, that we want to have, which is life is probabilistic. Nothing is perfect. We're looking for best probable outcomes. If you're running a business, you need to read a book called The Lean Startup by Eric great book. Yeah.
1: I read that. It's a great book.
2: Yeah. Starting with an MVP, a minimally viable product, learning how to A-B test, learning how to optimize, disregard, Right and then continuing le- learning how to iterate at a faster and faster pace that book changed the course of the proportions too, for sure. So that is one of them. I then go down this rabbit hole on project management. There's an author named Eli Goldratt, who's a genius. He has several books, the goal beyond the goal, critical chain. These all have to do with the idea of constraint theory and throughput. Um, I would definitely read The Goal. It's actually really funny. It's a story about how these things apply to this little factory with this really outdated romantic relationship, which will totally make you laugh. There's a tech version of The Goal called The Phoenix Project, which I make all my web dev guys read. So we had The Lean Startup. We had The Goal. What are some other books I have my guys read? Deep Work, I think, is a really important one to learn how to improve the efficiency of your day. I actually teach a business lecture. I've done it a couple times at at conferences of, essentially the most important thing you can learn is what to do with your time on a day-to-day basis, right? So like how efficient can you make your day? But I have certain things I do at certain times of the day because I know I'm more effective at those things at those times. So like I can't do technical writing at night. My brain just won't do that. But I don't have a problem being creative at meetings and I don't necessarily have a problem doing grunt work at night. So my day usually goes technical writing, meetings in the middle, grunt work at the end, right? So that I maximize my efficiency. And that's all from that deep work book. Beyond that, we'd have to actually like pick a topic because I know so many books in so many different directions, it's kind of hard. Like I'm reading The Model Thinker right now, which is all about the multi-model theory and how if you use multiple models to look at a problem, you're more likely to be accurate than if you only look at one model. I'll read stuff on logic with uh, Salman Rushdie being in the news. I've been reading through his books, but that's like kind. up.
0: The Moore's Last Sigh, one of my yeah. all-time favorite Salman Rushdie books. Well, we obviously, obviously,
1: um, well, we'll obviously link to all these books in the show notes for anyone who wants to read them. Hey guys, we just want to take a little break in this podcast episode to actually tell you about one of our own products, and that's our Ready State Virtual Mobility Coach.
0: Yeah, the app. Literally is the first place you should go if you're trying to feel better, if you're trying to solve an old movement-related problem, if you're just trying to not be as sore from your workout.
1: There is so much going on in this app. We have a mobility test that is comprehensive and designed by Kelly Starrett himself. It's pretty good. So you can figure out what your biggest limitations are and start to work on that. There are sports-specific mobilizations if you want to try to lift more or run faster. There is a pain area, and we even have a ton of bonus content. You can do challenges around squat and ankle and a bunch of other specific body parts, so you can just generally get more supple and awesome.
0: You should talk about this app more often. (laughs) Look, we started the original mobility project back in 2010, trying to help people solve problems for themselves. We think that every human being should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves, and we want you to be able to engage in some self-care in a really res- reasonable, responsible way. One of our favorite parts of it, daily mobility. You have a 10, 20, or 30-minute follow-along with me. If you just have a ball and a roller, think you want to feel better, move better, play along. I mean, we really feel like that's the base camp practice, Then you can add in what you need.
1: We're really proud of this and what we've created here, and we think you should give it a try. Back. Head on over to com slash trial, and use code POD20 for 20% off your first month. And just FYI, including your two-week free trial, that's literally six weeks for $11.99. You can't beat that. There's so much amazing content to help you feel better and move better for eleven ninety
0: nine. In the words of our uh, podcast producer, bananas. You got it!
1: I do want to go back to this pre-Audible discussion that we were having. And thank you, by the way, for your feedback on Audible. It was probably just to sort of make myself feel better about all the Audible books I listen to. But you have said the phrase evidence-based practice a few times on this podcast. Can you define what that is for people who don't know? That really is the the,
0: greater conversation of something that you really try to do. And you can see it in your social media about talking about research and talking about what is and isn't evidence-based practice. So people can begin to help sort out who's an expert, who's not an expert. Like, what do I listen to? I think that's really the heart of what's so confusing about this health and wellness space right now. It's, it's really difficult to tell where I should give my attention.
2: Yeah, it's a complicated topic, but let me, let me break it down. Simple, and then I'll just keep getting compli- more and more complicated. You guys can <laughs> stop me whenever you want. Um, so I think like when you look at how we develop our courses, right, all of them built on systematic review with the intention of being practical and improving outcomes. It really comes down to one thing, accuracy. I think my students deserve the most accurate information available. And that comes from, again, hating education and the amount of times I've had to reteach myself stuff because a teacher was completely inaccurate at some point in my education process. And Kelly, I know you felt that in physical therapy school because you almost always in almost every physical therapy school in the country you get that one 75-year-old whack job who's still teaching stuff that like doesn't make any sense, never made any sense. Like I'm feeling axonal flow move through your nerves in your arm, right? Like really weird stuff. But I, I don't think that's fair.
0: Don't text my axonal flow, bro.
2: Yo, <laughs> yo. Um, so, you know, if we just go back to the education piece just for one little second and go, I think my colleagues deserve the most accurate information I can possibly create. Okay, how do I get there? Well, there's this evidence-based practice thing. Sackett is probably the... Sackett at all is probably the reference that is most widely used. He talks about a three-legged school, stool. I'm going to simplify that three-legged stool because he's actually not particularly clear in the article. But if we simplify the three-legged stool to outcomes, right? Hopefully from objective, reliable assessments, research. He talks about third-party objective data, but let's talk about peer-reviewed research there. And then, of course, we talk about personal experience, all right, or professional experience being that third piece. And I do think that that piece is important. It's kind of funny how some people take it way too far, and then some people squash it all together, right? There's not a lot of balance around that one, but that's the three-legged stool, right?
0: And, and let me give people an example, a concrete example. I just saw a big system review that looked at the efficacy of having your meniscus, meniscus scoped. And it turned out maybe taking your meniscus out wasn't as great as we thought, right? Yeah. And I think that's a great example of we're thinking, this is the gold standard. I have a torn meniscus. Let me go in there and clean up this meniscus, clip it out. And it turned out the outcomes weren't better. In fact, they may have been worse on that thing. And we only know that because someone was like, hey, let's actually see what's happening when we do these things. And now we can have a make a little bit better decision about, should I have this? I have a torn meniscus. Should I get it cut out or not? I think that, for me, is a great example of sort of what you're talking about and how it can real drive real change and real efficiency and better outcomes.
2: Yeah. And I mean, we can even take it all the way back around, which is like, okay, so... Maybe meniscus removal, right, is over recommended because the outcomes don't match. But then if we took a little step further and we looked at all of our objective outcomes from patient records on top of personal experience from the docs, we might find that somewhere along our bell curve, there are people that actually do do better with getting their meniscus removed, right? And that's that three-legged stool at work, right? Is just what I just said right? It's not all or none ever. So going back to this evidence-based practice thing, when it comes to the Bushes too, we try to stay practical and outcome-driven, right? So all of the education we teach, we're trying to think about how are you going to make a professional better on Monday? I think there's a lot of certification programs out there, a lot of continuing education programs out there who are making people smart for the sake of being smart. It doesn't necessarily make them better practitioners.
0: We actually call it the Kluge effect. You're just, we just see you're Agglomerating more information onto a non elegant system and it gets wieldy and doesn't actually inform what you do or how you get outcomes or the efficacy of your practice or your coaching.
2: I think one of the most, for you, we were talking about training earlier, right? And strength and conditioning, one of the most well respected certifications, and I won't name them, who I was certified through, spends an obnoxious amount of time explaining physiology, hormones, hormone production, what it does to hormones, and then you look at the outcomes, and literally all of the research that I have seen shows that that stuff has a very little, if any, impact on how we actually program or do anything, right? So there's a perfect example of like, it's not that it's bad information. I'm not saying it's bad Misplaced information.
0: Misplaced precision.
2: Yeah, it's just it's not practical, right? So is it important? Yeah, probably for researchers probably wanting to experiment with some different things going down that rabbit hole. So we try to stay practical. We try to stay outcome-driven. One of the things that we do need to do a better job teaching in both the rehab side of things as well as the fitness and performance side of things is assessments, <laughs> right? So this is the outcome piece. Assessments should be reliable and objective.
0: Observable, measurable, and repeatable.
2: Right, exactly, exactly. We're saying the same thing there, right? So I think what too many... Physical therapists and trainers, if we're just going to pick two distinct pieces of this puzzle, do is they do some therapy. Maybe they started with some assessments and then they go, How do you feel? And the person goes, Better. And they go, See, I'm effective. And you're like, No, 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 that was not part of your reliable objective assessment. Short term subjective measures like, How do I feel? are not reliable right? You didn't reassess using your objective measures. So you actually have no idea whether you were effective because your intent was to change your objective measure, not just pain, right? Or not just how somebody feels or not just, you know, if you went in for weight loss and nobody loses weight, but they feel better, you still failed. Sorry. I hate to be such a jerk, but like at the end of the day, we need outcomes. So we take that outcome piece. We're always talking about that and then, of course, what you're talking about with the Bush Institute, which we try to do, and it's a huge, monstrous undertaking, is we take this research piece. And that's where things get a little squirrely, because this is third-party objective data. Research is not always easy or simple.
0: Especially not when it's on human beings.
2: Right. We've talked about, I think people talk about this term cherry-picking. They like to throw out the term cherry-picking like they're Annihilating somebody? Well, cherry picking is just using less research that is available, right? So, how do you be truly evidence based? You have to do comprehensive systematic reviews. Well, as soon as you go to comprehensive systematic reviews, as you've seen in our courses, the number of citations you're talking about gets very large very fast, right? And sometimes what you find out is only a small change in what people were already doing. It's an important piece because it refines, because it tells us, even sometimes it just supports what we're already doing, but that is the research piece. Of course, and then that last piece being professional experience. Well, you know, if you're talking about the Brookbush Institute, they're involved in content with us. They have a master's degree or better. Most are licensed professionals with doctorates. And of course, we're all just like pounding these techniques, right? And testing things and like trying to see what works and what doesn't. And then we're doing them in our own workouts and we're trying to see You know, I heard you mention a term once, like, it was like, okay, so we take this exercise and I think this exercise is really cool, right? And so then I try to teach it to another one of my professional buddies and they're like, oh, that's really cool. And then we go to a class and we try to teach it to the students and they go, what the are you talking about? (laughs) And we realize real quick that the technique, which is, this is your term, was not scalable, right? Like, it's so complicated, this thing that we've created, although it's effective, we would never be able to give it in a home exercise program. And I think that's where that professional experience comes in. It's like you have to like test and work with a lot of different things to find those techniques that are going to make it all the way from idea to effective to supervised exercise to generally recommendable to the general population.
1: So give me a second to tee this one up because I I do want to go back and talk about the research leg of the stool and... I'll start by saying, you know, I, I'm not sure how we talk about this without talking about the massive amount of information and misinformation in the Internetosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I see as a user are sort of two types of people on the Internet, especially in this larger, you know, movement, professional health and wellness space, which are people who just say things with absolutely no research whatsoever. They just say, whatever.
0: Or no uh, formal training,
1: no formal training, no expertise, no whatever. They're just like coming out of nowhere. And they're like, I say this is true. And it is. And it worked for me. You know, they do a lot of like n of one um, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, think And then there's another group of people who are kind of trying to support their thinking and ideas with research, but they're getting it wrong because they don't understand how to read or interpret research or how to put the appropriate weight on types of research. So Can you just give like a Reader's Digest version of the sort of hierarchy of research? Because you'll see people talk about, well, in a recent meta-analysis and in a recent peer-reviewed study, and there was this longitudinal study. And honestly, I think like 98% of people don't understand the difference between those things, nor do they know how much weight to put on one versus the other, like which actually has more meaning and which has less meaning. So do you think you could, I realize that's a gigantic question, but do you think you could... um,
2: Try let me teach to introduction to research against... methods in 10 yeah, yeah. minutes. Yeah, I here mean we go.
1: if you could yeah, here you go. Go. <laughs> I
0: only have three semesters of research. Just go. Just say. you know, little
1: exactly. little little uh you know, hundred thousand foot. Don't
0: level forget two version. semesters
2: of statistics. Um <laughs> oh, yeah, so, too. yeah, yeah, let me let me get into some of that because this is important. I think we can come at this thing a little bit with a couple of myths that need to be broken down. Okay. Number one. Supporting your ideas with research is confirmation bias supported by research. Developing your conclusions after reading the research is how evidence-based practice actually happens. When you go and read data, you're supposed to go in and from a, if we're talking about the scientific method, that's all we're talking about at the end of the day, it's a scientific method. If we're talking about the scientific method, you're supposed to go and collect the data and then try to make sense of it, okay? That's what evidence-based practice is. Now, if more people did that, and then they took this second point into perspective, research does not conflict with other research. (gasps) I said it, (laughs) right? Research does not, generally speaking, conflict with other research. Data is data. It is a researcher's responsibility to look at all of the research to develop a nuanced, detailed conclusion that makes sense of all of the data findings. For example we had that example of meniscus removal right Well somebody's going to go out there and find a couple studies that showed the meniscus removal worked right Well that conflicts with this meta-analysis no it doesn't. We know that generally speaking meniscus removal was over recommended but for this subcategory of the population, Meniscus rune removal may be the best intervention for the best possible outcome. That's a nuanced conclusion. That is what science is all about. Now, as far as the levels of evidence, this whole topic needs to be blown up. We need to start over. Meta-analysis and systematic review are not the highest levels of evidence, period. They are a different type of of evidence, like a textbook. They're a review. It's like watching Siskel and Ebert review a movie, right? It's not the actual movie. <laughs> meta-analysis does not make the data more reliable. It makes it less reliable. It adds potential bias and error. Does that mean systematic review and meta-analysis are not helpful? No. They're good as a general like overview of like what's coming in. And then you have RCTs, Experimental studies, observational studies. And then below that is where you'd actually be able to draw a line, which is case study, expert opinion. So obviously we, we have these meta-analysis systematic reviews we're going to put over here with t- textbooks. Not bad, just different. Then you have experimental data and observational data. That's actual research. All right, we're going to hold that up as the pinnacle of quality information, generally very, very narrow, okay? Like that's one thing that people have to understand. There's this artist named Soro. He did pointillism towards the end of his career. And you guys have probably seen these paintings, but at the end of his career, he was painting with little dots, little dots of paint. And then when you would step back, you would see the full picture. One research study is like one dot. It doesn't usually tell you much. You have to like get all of the body of research to see the full picture. But each one of those dots is nice and pure. That's our experimental and observational research, right? And then you have case studies and professional opinion. Case studies are great when we have no other evidence. At least we have somebody that's done something about this before, right? Like we have some idea that something happened once, right? (laughs) And then obviously professional experience or expertise, That obviously is helpful when you have no knowledge, education, ability to interpret some of the stuff that I was just talking about. Now, of course, this conversation we could have for another couple of days. I mean, like, if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about research, we get into statistics and what is a null hypothesis and how do you set up a good experiment and isolating variables and like why do we use statistics and what's a correlation and
0: what you you do a lot of Education around research and the language of research. And I don't know if anyone sees it, but definitely go to the Instagram and check out the socials, and you can pick up a lot about how to be a better consumer of research, which is really what I think most of us need to do. You know, we need to be better consumers of information and not conflating some research with logic. Yet. I feel like we've also sailed, like we've just, like, we don't have to think critically. We don't have to use logic anymore. If there's not a research study saying that this toothpaste, the same ingredients as this toothpaste, it doesn't, it's not effective.
2: There's two myths I want to nail right off the bat. Number one, if I post a conclusion and that conclusion is backed by 10 research studies and you, Kelly, come in and you go, well, here's why I don't like that research study. And here's why I don't like this research study. And I think these three research studies are less relevant than I would like and you decide that you're going to take the opposing position, but you have no evidence, you are wrong. You poking holes in my evidence does not make you more right. That's the unsupported default.
0: No, you have all the cake. I have no cake. I can make fun of your cake, but I I still have no cake.
2: Right. This is the unsupported default position fallacy, and you see it all the time. People think that if they prove me wrong, they're more right. No. Every assertion, every conclusion, every position needs its own individual support. This is something that everybody needs to learn. They need to get down because you see it on the internet. I and I hate to sound so egocentric, but I don't know how else to say it. I feel like in our field, I'm the only person who is only, well, the only company. I shouldn't say the only person. The only company that continuously backs everything with research. I'm the 100%. only one who posts citations like, this is why I think what I think. And every time they attack the citations and provide none. And people are like, you're full of shit or you're this. And I'm like, prove it. Where's your evidence?
0: We've always tried to say like the ready state is a model. Like actually how we look at movement is just a model. And what I can say is here's what the model predicts. And all of our model is based on normative joint and limb range of motion. This is what your shoulder should be able to do. Here's what predicts if these things are restricted or if you don't have the skill, right? But it's all based on, do you have normative dorsiflexion or not? Right. And I happen to know what normal dorsiflexion is. So it's useful for me to, be able to say, we're going in that direction. But what's nice about it is I'm like, well, here's what the model predicts. And I actually can remove myself from that the same way you can. You're like, well, here's what are available. I mean, it's not your research. You're saying, here's what I have understood right. to be the mechanisms for this or why this is true. And it's very different. And unfortunately, it doesn't take my feelings into consideration, Brent.
2: It never does.
0: It hurts my feelings. Yeah.
1: Can I ask maybe a question out of that? And that is it's sort of the end of one thing I mentioned, but one of the things I see a lot, and I don't know how you strike this balance between sort of like acknowledging people's lived experience. And also saying, dude, you're an N of one And like, I, I don't know what other example to give them. You know, so many people were like, I got a, let's say, headache from getting the COVID vaccine. And then I went online and I read that four other people got a headache from the COVID vaccine, which means the COVID vaccine causes headaches and therefore must be bad, right? Like, or, or whatever. You, you could go online and find a thousand other examples of that where someone in their own lived experience had probably more likely a correlation versus causation experience to something, whether it's a diet or a vaccine or Whatever you name it, they they have this lived experience. Chances are they're correlating it to something else, but then putting it out there into this fear. Like, how do we manage saying, "Okay, look, like your experience is valid." Like, shout louder. You you okay? Like, but it but maybe it's not. I mean, is that? Can we say that? Like, our you know, can we just say like it doesn't matter that you got a headache when you got the COVID vaccine? Like, that's probably correlation and not causation.
2: Well, and let's pull apart the correlation causation thing because that's another myth I can mm-hmm. blow up because you're not asking. People who say, well, that's a correlation, not a causation. It's a stupid statement. I hate to be so blunt, but I'm going to get back to that in a second. Let's talk about the end of one thing. This is what's called a fundamental attribution error. We have to realize, and you know, if I I was reading a book once and they said, if you were going to put anything on a billboard to teach the world, what would it be? Life is probabilistic not binary. It's not yes or no. It's not all of this or none of this. It is always probabilities. And if you can wrap your head around that, life is so much easier because all you try to do is stack the probabilities in your favor. You know things are going to go wrong, but if you stack enough of them in your favor, eventually things are going to lean in the right direction right? Like this is how my business operates. How many tests can I possibly run today? Right? So I'm going to run all these tests. Now, how we weight those tests might be about how much they cost, what the chance of actually affecting our outcomes are, but are they all going to work? No. No. If every one of my tests and ideas worked, we would be having this call from my personal jet, um <laughs> right, like it would be a totally different conversation, right? You were talking about the COVID vaccine, and let's let's jump into this for a second, because this was to me, watching the COVID thing play out was just watching the nightmare that is the lack of education around statistics and science in school programs. Okay. Did people die from side effects of the vaccine? Yes. Absolutely, one hundred percent. What were the chances of dying from the side effects of the vaccine versus the side effects of the disease? I mean, those two things are not even close to one another. Okay. We're talking 10,000 to one. The number of people who died in the United States following the vaccine is so much smaller than the million people we lost from the virus. People are like, well, I still don't have to take it. You're absolutely right. You do not have to take it. But, if one in 400 people, which is the number of people who died from COVID in the United States, one in 400, if one in 400 people died crossing the street in front of your house, you would not cross the street. Now, if I told you you could cross the street next to it, and your chances immediately went to one in 10,000, which that is a ridiculous statistic. The number of people who died after, the, uh, after getting the vaccine is actually much, much lower than that. But let's say it's one in 10,000. If you had a choice of going 1 in 400, you might die, or 1 in 10,000, you might die, you're going to cross the street that is 1 in 10,000 every time. That is setting yourself up for a life based on probabilities. Might you die crossing the 1 in 10,000 street? Absolutely. Nobody's denying that. Nobody's saying that this is any less sad. But it's a little unfair to think that nothing is ever going to go bad for anything that we do. It just doesn't exist that way. Now, when we talk about models, we talk about what we do. We have to think in the same way, right? So people will be like, like, you know, the research, uh, Tim Hewitt, one of my favorite researchers, right? He does all this research on the correlation between knee valgus, right? During things like a squat or the left test, right? Which is kind of like an overhead squat assessment. When you do a depth jump squat or left test, right? Knee varus, knees bow in and future risk of ACL injuries. Could you have knee valgus and never have an ACL injury? Yes. Yes. But does it increase your chance of knee pain and ACL injury? Yes. So which direction are you gonna go, right? Like that's all we're talking about. Do I get things wrong? Yeah, yeah, I've had patients where it didn't work. Any, you know, Kelly can appreciate this. You know, I've talked to this about classes. Any physical therapist who says they haven't flared up a patient, lying. <laughs> right? Like, that's just. Oh, a you terrible.
0: are way more sensitized than I thought. <laughs> Sorry about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Whoops. I mean, have Next I. Next
0: time I'm much better at identifying that I will uh, want to leave you, having leave here, being able to manage that a little more effectively. Yes,
2: that's yeah. true. People ask me, like, have I ever had somebody get off the table and their overhead squat assessment was worse? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <it> happens?
0: <laughs> Yeah, my favorite. Uh, for just everyone I know this aside. I love old and cold. Oh, this happened to you long time ago. It's not irritable and sensitive and and flaming red hot. I'm like, let's go, let's party. Old and cold. That's my jam.
2: Yeah, man, for sure.
0: That's because I don't have that problem as as often.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's something to that that thing. Gray Cook said at first where he was talking about maybe what we should be going after is the dysfunctional, non painful segment. Right? So if you have cervical pain, maybe you should be working on upper thoracic mobility first rather than just jabbing at the neck. <laughs> anyway, this goes back to what you were talking about. I hope I've given some examples of like, okay, the fundamental attribution error is a real problem, right? Yeah. yeah. It allows us to be pulled towards the lower probability thing and think that it's bigger than it is. And everybody can find a situation that end of one thing, either you could be an outlier, you could be the less likely scenario. The other thing that happens with the end of one thing that I does not get enough credit, especially like in fitness, is like you don't actually know what worked. All the paleo diet worked for me. Well, just so happens that when you went on the paleo diet was also the first time you ever tracked your nutrition, first time you ever ate less calories, the first time you ever worked out on a regular basis, the first time you ever started tracking your sleep because you happen to get a Fitbit or iWatch or whatever at the same time
0: or self-identify with a paleo community and suddenly had support
2: right exactly right so that's what research is really good at is trying to determine what the variable was that was successful so if we put 25 people on the paleo diet all from different walks of life and everybody loses weight okay okay and we think maybe the paleo diet might have to do something to do with this. We could take this one step further. If we're going to go through these levels of evidence, that would just be an observational study, right? We could set up a randomized control trial, do somebody not on a diet, do the paleo diet, and then compare it to something like maybe just a low calorie diet, same calories as on the paleo diet, but just a normal mixed diet, right? We'll call it normal American diet. That would be an interesting study, right? So you got the fundamental attribution error. You got why N of one doesn't work. You got life is probabilistic. And then we hit on this other thing, which is, well, it might be correlation and not causation. Oh my God. Do you know what it takes to prove causation? Uh. Probably hard. (laughs) Okay, but that's, you know what? That's the right answer. And, And here's why, because people are like, well, is it a correlation? Yes, it's a correlation. But you've set up an argument that can't be won. Like, how do I prove to you that it's causation? When well, you have something called the Bradford Hill Criteria, right, for causation. And you know what causation actually comes from? Lots of different correlations.
1: Correlations. That's it. Nice.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right? So, like, if we have a bunch of different correlations that, you know, under multiple circumstances with different audiences, with different experiments, different research studies, all kind of point to the same cause, we start to believe that there's causation there. Right? Like this... This argument of correlation versus causation, it's stupid. It's like, what end of the spectrum are you on?
0: We're actually looking for correlation. Well, correlation.
2: I mean, we could make an argument. I know some statisticians will argue with me on this point, but in a way, all research does is determine correlations, right? So like all a a research study really tells us, and this is why people get so fed up with scientists not using definite language. They don't use definite language because we use research. Research uses statistics. Statistics gives us probabilities, right? Which are just strengths of, in a way, strengths of relationships, right? Like there is a 92% chance of X, right? That's a relationship. That's a correlation. I would lean in favor of the 92% over the eight, but, you know, I guess you could take the 8% if you want to.
0: I want the 99% proof that my juice cleanse it's going to okay, give me ups. So, That's so, all I'm looking for.
1: I've got a question for you that may be unanswerable given your actual drinking, education. Drinking
2: in, mimosas all day is not a juice cleanse. Yeah, it's not. <laughs> does not count as a juice cleanse. How
1: do? Okay, so one thing I want to say when I listen to all this, and you know, my background is so different from yours, I, in that I, I went. I just to
0: have basketball. to say I really love that because sometimes I'm like, "Hey, define your terms." You said stretching doesn't work. What do you mean by the word stretching? Uh, People we can
2: don't get even into, know. You don't even we'll have
0: to, we're going to do part two. Okay, so, but I'm like, you don't define your terms. So, uh, one let's of the things
1: when I hear you talking about this is actually, I'm really grateful for my law school education because what's hammered into you in law school is that you don't know anything. Um, and that the answer to like 99.9% of questions is it depends. And so you have to, you're actually literally trained to think that like, it's okay to have duality and that nothing is binary. And you're speaking in terms of probabilities, but it's like, you know, in the law, it's like, well, it kind of depends because there is this law, but then, you know, you could have murdered this person this way and then someone else murdered this person this way. And then, so it depends on how you applied a lot of those, those two different set of facts. But anyway, it's, it's very similar to sort of a different way of like, coming at it. a lot of
2: people buried in your backyard.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say
0: the same thing. I was like, why did she look at Lisa when you said murder?
1: Murder, murder. Dun, dun, But what I wanted to actually ask you, and, and again, this may be hard for you to answer because of your educational background, but like, what do normal people do, right? I think there's a lot of people who are actually taking in information on the internet and they really actually care and they want to try to learn and choose people to follow who are giving them good information um, and be able to distinguish what between what is entertainment and actual information. And, you know, like, how do regular people who are, you know, educated at different levels, but like still kind of care about trying to understand correct, accurate information? How do those people sift through the quagmire of misinformation to identify what is good information? I mean, I do think, by the way, understanding the hierarchy of research studies is helpful because one just side subtext is that I feel like whenever anyone writes like, in a recent meta-analysis, just because the word meta sounds so awesome, that people actually think a meta-analysis maybe has more weight than some other kind of study because meta sounds, I don't know, it just sounds huge. Right. So how do people
2: navigate this? That's why I use mega, us? mega-analysis. Yeah, I mean, it's like a
1: mega-analysis, but meta. <laughs>
2: Yes, that's a great question. I think, number one, you have to try to stay away from the logical fallacies. I see way too much of this on the internet. I think politics, I mean, there's no doubt that the political environment is affecting our scientific community. People have politicized everything to the point that it's like they use the same, well, that's that's your belief. And you have to what's the word I'm looking for? You have to respect my truth, right? Like they have this idea that we all are supposed to respect each other's opinions. No, no, actually I don't have to. This is science. I don't care about your opinion. You're a 25 year old new grad. I've been educating for almost as long as you've been alive. I'm sorry. I actually do not have to consider your random ass opinion that you just came up with without support, right? So I think this idea that every idea should be respected is actually not true. I think not giving up, not falling for these fallacies, continuing to try to learn is actually the most important thing you can do. I would rather you understood 30% of an abstract of a study than listen to some of the ridiculous gurus that are out there. Now, long-term, here's the solution. Me... Kelly Starrett, I have an immense amount of work to do to make sure that we are at the top of the hill, right? And that sounds egocentric, but I actually mean it absolutely the opposite. This is a humility thing. We have failed our industry. We have failed to become, although both of us are working very hard to create these evidence-based systems, you mentioned one of my favorite words, which I mentioned at the beginning, which is modeling, right? Sorting, algorithms, right? Like all of this information theory, we're trying to push all of this forward. And me and you have failed to become the most accurate and most popular so that we have the most influence.
1: (laughs) Do you think you could talk about this evidence while not wearing your shirt and that would solve the problem of accuracy plus popularity?
2: (laughs) Me personally? No.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I I chose the wrong parents. Yeah,
2: I was about to say, I think one of my parents might have been a vampire. Like, I am so pale. It's a little ridiculous. I think it's it's sad. It's sad. I can't go to the beach. It's it's a, it's an affliction. But what I was saying, I don't want people to think that, like, I'm going off in this ego thing. It's just not me and Kelly. I'm just using us as two examples. Like, those of us who are trying to do a systematic approach to refining evidence-based practice are not winning the war of marketing we're not winning the war of getting the word out we're not winning the war of making it accessible right now you guys i mean kelly you i, I think that's your claim to fame is for a while there and maybe still you were the most popular physical therapist i think i've ever seen <laughs> i was like holy shit! there's a physical therapist on tv <laughs> right <laughs> i didn't even think that was going to happen Right, so like, but
0: like, be a physical therapist. They said, see the world. They said,
2: but why? Why aren't you still up there, right? Like, why aren't you the next Doctor Oz? And, and this is not an attack, Kelly. You know, I have nothing but the utmost respect.
0: Oh no, no, no! no I, we, I hear you. I hear you.
2: It's like we we can't stay yeah. there. We can't. We can't yeah. get there and stay there and influence. I mean, we know like Dr. Oz, for example, like went totally off the rails and just started supporting anything that would give him money, obviously not evidence-based, despite the fact that he was the real deal at one point, which totally pisses you off. But yeah, that's that's where I think like...
1: I just have to tell you, though, it was a true story. You know, we, we had like a sort of pseudo-competitor person that was just growing like crazy on Instagram. And I said to our social media team, I was like, hey, so our content is as good if not better than their content. Better. Better. And yet their, you know, Instagram following is growing by 10,000 a month and ours is growing by 1,000. Like, what's the difference? And literally with like a completely straight face, our social media guy is like, well, the guy in their video is never wearing a shirt. So that's where we are. (laughs) And I was like, wow, okay. So like, that's the, you know, again, it's like, how how do we... I wasn't going to do this, but... Yeah, you're like, anyway, so I, I just think that's an example of, right, because I think it's such a point well taken that it's like, how do you have the best information, the most accurate evidence-based practice, and then how how can you also make that the most popular?
0: I would love... that's
1: That's the ticket.
0: I'm going to cherry pick some of your social posts.
2: Yeah, do it.
0: That I think are the most controversial. And what I would love to do is have another episode where we could talk about these... I call them like zombie thirst traps. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's a thirst trap where you need, you're looking for attention on the internet. So you post a zombie argument. And that we, I'm like, this argument should be dead already, but it's not. And you needed attention. So ergo, the zombie thirst trap. And you do such a good job of taking on foam rolling doesn't work. Stretching doesn't. Like some of these, I would love to go through with you sometime and talk about some of these. I'm going to call them third rails. I don't even touch them anymore. I'm like it's Think not there worth it. used to it.
1: be a show called Mythbusters is it is that what <laughs> it it's, like? it's like it's myth, no, like Mythbusters fine. with Brent and Kelly.
2: Yeah, I mean I had I published fitness or fiction in 2011 with uh that was all mythbusting with research. That was my first book. <laughs> I do so feel good. like no doubt. I feel like we could do coffee talk with the two with the three of us for like ever. Like we could do this weekly. Like we never <laughs> run out of topics to talk about.
1: It's never
0: ending. Welcome to Zombie Thirst Trap. Today we'll be taking on. Yeah, it, it really. Today I think we'll it's, be
2: taking off our shirts and taking on.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: I think uh, you. <laughs> I I want to wrap this because we, you know, we have a lot in common. You and I are friends. Juliet and I are obsessed with the things you're really good at. Where can people begin to learn more about? The Brookbush Institute, where can people become curious about following the way you're thinking and teaching and promoting science? What does someone start to kind of know a little bit more about your brain?
2: Brookbushinstitute.com is the website. We try to make things as open as possible, like brookbushinstitute.com backslash courses is like all of our courses. Like you can see all of them. There's free to view courses. I think we're on all social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or even on Twitter although I really don't like Twitter much for the fact that it's the haterverse <laughs> so I think if you're on social media like you you can definitely take us in that way you know I think I'm gonna a little sales pitch here we are using a Netflix model and when we say a Netflix model we literally mean a Netflix model we are 1999 a month cancel anytime and every course you take with us gets is approved for CECs and counts towards certification so like I think there's a lot more people who should just try it we even have a 30 day money back guarantee if you don't like it but like i'm not saying that just to like sell you a membership but it's like the co- the upfront cost is low because we believe the upfront cost should be low so that you can try what you're going to get involved in cuz i mean the bigger commitment is not finance it's time so right like we know that so yeah brookbushinstitute.com and everywhere on social, and now on the Ready State podcast.
0: That's right. <laughs> we'll get you over to TikTok eventually, yeah. my bro. Yeah.
2: That's right. I'm an excellent
0: twerker. I just want to see you pointing and lip syncing to research. That'll be my my jam. That's exactly right. He's all about accessibility. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, he's he's same. my he's my the pocket same. PT. He yeah. he is. Uh, Brent pocket is in PT. my personal cabal of touchstones of understanding. Trying to understand the world. That's really what I'm trying to do is understand the world and bring some people along with me.
2: And you know, the ready state was my next business idea. So I say that <laughs> out of love and affection. Like I think it's so important that more people have access to trying to help themselves. Like I was talking about the caste system of education. There's this other caste system that's like. All of the self-management of injury prevention and injury recovery that you guys do—that I was like, that was my next business. You took it, Kelly. So I'm not going there. Um, But I had two choices. I was
0: like, I can I can do research and education, or I can do this self-care. And I was like, ooh, (laughs) (laughs) self-care.
2: Thanks Thanks for leaving me with a tough one, bud.
0: (laughs) You're welcome, buddy. Hey, thank you so much, my friend. Thank you so much.
2: You guys are very very welcome.
0: Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show.
1: Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State.
0: Until next time, cheers, everyone.